Our text this morning is from Matthew chapter 1, starting in verse 18. This is how the birth of Jesus of Nazareth, the Messiah, came about. His mother Mary was pledged to be married to Joseph, but before they came together, she was found to be pregnant through the Holy Spirit. Because Joseph, her husband, was faithful to the law and yet did not want to expose her to public disgrace, he had in mind to divorce her quietly. But after he had considered this, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife, because what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name Jesus, because he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had said through the prophet. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son, and they will call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. This is God's word. Now these passages about Christ's arrival, they're given to wake us up. But familiarity and sentimentality and the jingly jangly 50% off sales have a way of lulling us to sleep. So we can read texts like this and yet somehow in our sin-tainted smallness, you know, the reality-altering phrase, God with us. It's like it doesn't land. It's like the gravity is no longer there. It's like just the uh, comings and goings of our life in the business of the holidays can sort of strip the meaning out of that. And so that weirdly, um, you know, God with us, God come to earth, is less interesting than 50% off sales in peppermint mochas. How does that happen? Now you can relax because the title of the sermon this morning is not a very Scroogey Christmas. It's like a down on your peppermint mocha. Enjoy your peppermint mocha. But, the, but the, the, the glory of this gospel, the glory of these texts, is that the joy that, we, the joy that we have as a church is much deeper than the froth on the top of the peppermint mocha. And so <clears throat> this morning, we're going to be focusing on the implications of Jesus' name. The sermon this morning will be dedicated to that phrase, God with us. And so I'm going to break the teaching into two sections, God and with us. So two points, not three, it's a Christmas miracle. And uh, so, but before we explore this very familiar text in Matthew's gospel concerning the first Christmas day, I want to read an unfamiliar text from the imagination arresting book of Revelation to give you another perspective on that first Christmas day. Revelation chapter 12 and verses 3 to 5, 3 and 5. It says this. And then another sign appeared in heaven. An enormous red dragon with seven heads and ten horns and seven crowns on its heads. The dragon stood in front of the woman who was about to give birth so that it might devour her child the moment he was born. And she gave birth to a son, a male child, who would rule the nations with an iron scepter. And her child was snatched up to God in his throne. That's right. There's a dragon in your nativity. And uh, this apocalyptic poetry and revelation, it pulls back the veil in the physical realm. And it gives us insight into Christmas morning in the spiritual realm. And it's like Christmas morning in the upside down. As you read through this, and I know that dragons don't seem very Christmassy. 
And I know that uh, they don't fit into the Netflix Christmas special good feels that we kind of grow accustomed to. And I know that it doesn't seem like a very Christmassy thing to say to you, hark the herald angels sing, a dragon, a dragon waits to eat the king. But that's what Revelation 12 gives us. And it's a completely different way of thinking about Christmas, is it not? Because when you're picking out your family Christmas cards, you're like, oh, honey, should we go with, you know, the snowman or the reindeer or the star of David? Oh, look, here's an apocalyptic one with a red dragon looming over the manger. That's never an option. But the, uh, the, this dragon in the New Testament goes by many names. The serpent, the liar, the most common and the most fitting. Satan, in the Greek meaning the accuser, the adversary. And Revelation 12 goes on to say that this accuser goes on to accuse us day and night before God. And the accuser had a case because, of course, none of us are born without sin. And so in the little town of Bethlehem, this dragon is poised to kill the child who came to take away our sin, to save us from the finality of death and to deliver us from all accusation. And as you read through the New Testament, you find that the dragon missed the opportunity. He missed the opportunity at the manger. He missed the opportunity later in Egypt. And you keep on fast-forwarding through Jesus' life. And he missed the opportunity in a desert outside of Galilee. And then he continually missed the opportunities until one day, 33 years of hunting later, the dragon that failed to devour the king in the manger swallowed the king on the cross. But what the accuser could never comprehend is that this king's substitutionary death, of course, was not final, making the end of sin and death inevitable. And the virgin will conceive and give birth to a son, and they will call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. So let's take a moment and just reflect on the statement God. That this first Christmas, it represents God waging war on the accuser. Waging war And this war is over us. You know, in the beginning, since Genesis 3, we find that the scriptures teach us that the original sin of not wanting God, but wanting to be God, that divine treason that we we committed, we find that the result of that is that the, the world, this realm, the physical realm we called earth, is now the enemy territory. It's his territory. The reason that we all deal with suffering in every form is because this is the enemy territory. The reason that we have to grapple with disease and sickness and the inevitability of death is that this is the enemy territory. And we've been born into a condition of sin, and that's why in the world, though there's glorious, beautiful things to be celebrated, there's this endless catalog of pain and evil that's in the world because this is the enemy territory. The birth of Christ is God invading enemy territory. The return of Christ is God taking back and restoring his territory. And we live in between those two advents. Christ's first arrival was very humble. And his second one won't be. And we live in between this beautiful reality of what God has promised. And it is our certainty and our hope that Christ the King has come, Christ the King is coming again, that gives us glorious strength in the moment. You know, that the life that we live as Christians now is not huddled in our churches saying, well, one day God will restore everything and until then we all just kind of sing kumbaya. No. The radicality of this gospel, the radicality of the gospel is not like opium that just sedates the church. 
It's like smelling salts that wakes us up that we go into the city with great love in our hearts and joy in our souls. A pervasive sense of hope that we live in because we live in between the advents and we know what Christ has done and we know what he has promised to come and to do. And now we're able, just as Christ emptied himself on the cross, we are able to, in love and care and mission, empty ourselves in the city as we love and care for others that we go to work with and go to school with and do a recreation with. Our, our way of being able to just engage in love as the healing power of the gospel washes over our souls as the reality of these advents becomes deep in our hearts that Jesus is God. Now, the scriptures, continually as you read them, people fall down before angels, and the angels say, get up, I'm not God. People fall before the apostles after they do miracles, the apostles are like, get up, I'm not God. People be- fall before the messengers who come with messages, they say, get up, I'm not God. People fall before Jesus, he accepts it, because he's God. Everybody else is like, whoa, 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 get up. People fall before Jesus, he's like, no, that's the appropriate response. He's God. He didn't go to the cross because he did good things. He went to the cross because he claimed that he was going to be God. Jesus went around through the New Testament forgiving sin. And you and I gather in church week in and week out to celebrate that our sins are forgiven. And Jesus goes around forgiving sin. And the Pharisees lost their minds because he forgave sin. Because you can only forgive sin if you're God. Because the way, I'll explain it like this for the kids who are in here. You can't forgive something unless the thing you're forgiving was done against you. So let's say after the service today, you guys are about to go home. You're like, wow, that was a short sermon. It only had two points. Pastor Paul should always do that. And so you're on your way home. And uh, you, you get in the car in the parking lot. And somebody pulls out and they scratch your car. They just pull it in front of you. Zoom! And they scratch your car. And then I go over. And I knock on the window. And I say to the person that scratched your car, it's okay, my son. You're forgiven. Your parents aren't going to be like, oh, that's okay, Pastor Paul forgave them. They're going to get out of the car, but whoa, whoa, hold on a second. You can't forgive that. That wasn't done against you. I'm the one that has to do the forgiving. You scratched my car. Kids, that's how forgiveness works. You can't forgive it unless it was done against you. So when Jesus is going around forgiving sin, what he's saying is all of the wrongdoing that's happening in, in the world is actually being done against me because I'm God. And I'm going to forgive it in radical, scandalous grace that you can't understand. Turn to me, trust me, bend your knee to me, bow to me. That's the appropriate response. This is Jesus. Jesus is God. Philip Yancey is an author who wrote a book called The Jesus I Never Knew. And he says this, From God's viewpoint and Satan's, Christmas signals far more than the birth of a baby. It was an invasion, the decisive advance in the great struggle for the cosmos. And as a Christian, I believe that we live in two parallel worlds. The one consists of hills and lakes and barns and politicians and shepherds watching their flocks by night. And the other consists of angels and sinister forces. And one night in the cold, in the dark, among the wrinkled hills of Bethlehem, those two worlds came together at a dramatic point of intersection. And God, who knows no before and no after, God entered time and space. God, who knows no boundaries, he took on the shocking confines of a baby's skin, the ominous constraints of mortality. It's little wonder that a choir of angels broke out in spontaneous song 
disturbing not only a few shepherds, but the entire universe. Jesus is God. And the good news is, <clears throat> he's not a distant, impersonal force. He is God with us. So let's, consi- let's consider this, God with us. There's a, uh, there was a writer, her name was Dorothy Sayers. She was a brilliant woman. She wrote, she wrote mystery fiction, and she uh, was a st- student of the ancient languages. She was the first woman to graduate from Oxford. And she wrote a series of books about a character named uh, Lord um, Peter Whimsey. And he would go on these quests and these adventures and he would solve these crimes. And some of the writers, the fans of her novels, they noticed that as you followed Peter's story, as you followed his adventures, a woman appears in the story. And her name is Harriet. And Peter and Harriet fall in love and they come together and they get married. And many of the fans of Dorothy's writing have said that the author looked into the world that she created and she fell in love and she wrote herself in. She saw her character's loneliness. She saw the loneliness of her creation and she wrote herself in to save him. And Christmas is God, the author of all creation, looking into his creation, seeing our lostness, writing himself into human history in those first few years uh, um, of the first century, writing himself in to human history that first Christmas to save us from our lostness, to save us from our darkness. And as you read through the Old Testament, God's presence is always powerful, but it's overwhelming until God comes in Christ. God appears to Job in the whirlwind, overwhelming. He appears on the mountain in, in Mount Sinai in fire and smoke, overwhelming. He appears to the priests in the Holy of Holies as the Shekinah glory cloud fills the temple, overwhelming. He appears to Abraham and to Moses in like a a pillar of fire, overwhelming. But then he comes in Christ, comforting. Still powerful, yet comforting. Transcendent, yet tender. And in the same way that the majesty of the sun can only be seen through a filter, Christmas is the majesty of God seen in Christ, the filter, so that we can behold his glory. God on his own is abstract. God is too big and too ominous, cosmic. God is abstract. Christ is concrete. See the tenderness of the baby. See the vulnerability. See the humiliation of the God who wraps himself in the dirt of his own creation. See him loving and giving and serving and bending and stooping and washing and feeding and filling and emptying and dying and rising. See it. It's concrete. God with us. God with us is the recovery of everything that he created. God with us is what God always intended. God with us is what God will enjoy for forever. And as you read through the scriptures, you keep seeing this radical theme over and over and over. In the beginning in Genesis in the garden, he is God with us as he walked with our parents in the cool of the day. In the Exodus, as God humiliates and humbles himself and condescends himself to a dusty box behind curtains, meandering through the wilderness, surrounded by the 12 dysfunctional families that he loves, it's God with us. And then you see it again in the New Testament as he comes in the manger, God with us. And you see it as Christ surrounds himself, not with 12 tribes, but with 12 disciples. Again, you see it. God with us. 
All throughout the scriptures, this is what God was always intended. This is what God has restored. And this is where all of history is going. God with us. And spoiler alert, you read Revelation 21. And the text <clears throat> says this. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Look, God's dwelling place is now among the people. And he will dwell with them. They will be his people. And God himself will be with them. And he will be their God. And he will wipe every tear from every eye. And there will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain. For the old order of things has passed away. And what is our response to this, church? What is our response to this God who is with us? The only wise response to a God who is drawn near to us is to daily draw near to him. Is to find out what small shiny trinket in our life has got in the way of us drawing near to him. This is the only wise and reasonable response of the God who moved heaven and earth to come to us that first Christmas day. You see, the, the life, the death, the resurrection, it means that God with us is objectively true. But when we draw near to him, the scandal of the gospel is experientially true. It becomes, something, it becomes something that we can enjoy. And as you read through the prayers in the New Testament, the Apostle Paul kept praying this for the church. I wish that you would know the depth of this, the depth and the width and the height of how good this grace is. That it would move you, move your heart, change your life. That what is experiential, or sorry, what is objectively true in the manger, objectively true at the cross, objectively true in the empty tomb, written in hu- human history, that what is objectively true would be experientially true. And how does it become experientially true? We turn to the one who came to us. We continually turn to the one and draw to the one who drew to us. In the same way that a little child walking down the sidewalk on a snowy, icy, Canadian morning is walking beside their father, they are objectively that, that father's child. It's objectively true. But when that little child slips and falls and scrapes her hands and scrapes her knees and the tears start rolling and the little child cries and they turn and they raise their hands up and they turn and they say, Daddy! And the dad picks them up and hugs them. They were, they were always objectively the child, but now they're experiencing what it's like to be the child. He was always their father, but as they turn to him in their moment of pain and of need and of sorrow... Now they're experiencing the Father. What is the only reasonable response? It's for us to turn to Him and to draw to Him and to ask ourselves the question. When we are confronted with feelings of worry or despair, when we think about our future and we find ourselves lying in bed at night because we're just not sure how it's going to work out, when we find ourselves grappling with failure and loneliness, What do we draw toward? Because if we draw near to the God who drew near to us, his comforting, soul-lifting grace will heal us. There's a sculptor, and her name is Billy Bond, and she works with her clay in a dynamic way. She uses an old uh, Japanese technique called kintsugi. And what it is is you mold something gloriously out of clay... And then you allow it to free fall and shatter. And then you pick up the shattered pieces and you use a gold lacquer. And patiently under their careful hand, they put the pottery back together. So that the gold is woven into the brokenness. So that the brokenness is woven into beauty. 
And in the same way that the artist reconstructs her art and binds the pieces together with the gold so that the breaking is enfolded into the beauty, Emmanuel, God with us, he is the God who by his grace unfolds our brokenness into his beauty. So church, the only wise response for us is to draw to him, to draw near to him. We need God's grace to strengthen us for the trials in this life. We need God's grace for living life in between the advents. We can look back on God's faithfulness as he wrote himself into human history and the arrival of Christ. We can look forward to the faithfulness of the restoration of God that will come with the return of Christ. And in the meantime, we draw near to the one who has gone cosmic lengths to draw near to us. Let's pray.